we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, the podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm joined by Professor Rick Schein. Rick is one of Australia's most important minds in the area of reptile research and a leading expert on cane toads. His team has extensively studied the invasive amphibians and developed new methods to control the ecological impact. If you want to talk cane toads, Rick is the right person to do this, and I'm excited to welcome him to Talking Australia. Welcome, Rick. Thank you. Australia is known in the world for its amazing flora and fauna, especially snakes, spiders, and all sorts of poisonous creatures. But unfortunately, Australia is also known as an example of the devastating effects of introduced species to its ecosystem. I remember learning in school all about the issue of rabbit plagues and the hopeless efforts of controlling those. How would you rate the impact of cane toads in comparison to other invasive species? Oh, the cane toads are the sort of the big frog that every Australian loves to hate and they've probably had a bit more publicity than they deserve in terms of their impact. Uh, I suspect that feral cats are probably much worse. Foxes are probably worse. And there's a whole bunch of other things like invasive grasses, um, you know, grasses that were brought in for agricultural use that have spread all over the place and are supporting very intense wildfires and killing forests. So look, I think cane toads is sort of the middle of the pack. It's term is impact, but... Uh, People think they're, they're big and they're ugly and they're easy to recognise and so people tend to think they're a pretty big deal. So they're poster child of <laughs> invasive creatures. They're not as, as cute as, uh, as the rabbits or little foxes or something like that, yes. Um, your early research focused on the ecology of snakes. Um, how, how did the shift towards research on cane toads uh, happen for you? I worked on snakes for a long time, you know, for decades. Might, that was really uh, the large part of my career. And... I found a, a beautiful place halfway between Darwin and Kakadu up in the Northern Territory that uh, had phenomenal numbers of snakes, especially pythons. And it was a perfect place to try to understand questions like how does year-to-year -year variation in wet season rainfall change the abundance of the native rats that the pythons feed on and thus on the, on the pythons themselves. Uh, you know, this was before the days when we were thinking about climate change, but we have now a pretty good understanding of how the idiot variation in climate affects the ecology of these tropical ecosystems. So that's what I was doing and having a great time doing it. And then in about 2004, it became apparent that the cane toads that were spreading east from the Queensland coast would reach my field site fairly quickly. Um, the toads were brought in in 1935 to control insect pests in sugarcane 
Uh, they did a very bad job of that, but they, they liked Australia and they remarkably managed to spread through the dry parts of Western Queensland. They, they screamed with joy when they hit uh, Arnhem Land and Kakadu with a lot more water around and they began to accelerate for reasons that we, we have studied and now understand. And so around about 2004, it became obvious that the toads would be reaching this floodplain where I'd been working for 20 years. Yeah. And according to all the stories, they were probably going to kill a large proportion of the animals I was working on. And so it was pretty obvious that here was an incredible opportunity to look at an invasion in process, work out what the hell was going on in an area that we understood pretty well already, and maybe even come up with some ways to, to save the animals that are so dear to my heart. You touched on that um, a little bit, but uh, for those listeners out there who are not familiar with the history of cane toads in Australia, it might be good to just give them a little rundown. Um, you mentioned the year 1935, obviously. How, how did they exactly become such a big problem? Yeah, well, the toads are native to um, the eastern part of northern South America, you know, French Guiana, places like that. Yeah. Uh, people that had sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean picked up a whole bunch of toads and took them there to try to get them to eat the bugs that were eating the sugarcane. Um, from there, they got taken to Hawaii in 1932, and uh, the Queensland Agriculture Department scientists were looking for a way to deal with uh, beetles that were eating sugarcane in Queensland, and somebody had the bright idea that, that toads would be the way to do it. So they, they went to Hawaii and picked up 100 toads and brought them back, released their babies. Um, toads, a cane toad can have 30,000 eggs in a single clutch, so you wow. can get a lot of babies out of a few, yeah. out of that 100 toads. Um, and uh, they hoped that they would eat all the beetles. They didn't, um, but they began to spread out across Australia uh, at an increasing rate. That is the sad irony, isn't it? That it didn't even help with the sugarcane beetles. Um, there were even concerns back then, I read, that that the toads might become a, a problem, but obviously no one listened back then to, to ecologists who said, hey, wait a minute, we should maybe study the impacts uh, on the environment. It was interesting how little attempt was made to understand those wider impacts. I mean, in a sense, you could say that the people that brought in the toad were coming up with a an ecologically responsible <laughs> pest control thing yeah. compared to putting in lots of chemicals and things like that, which was the yeah. alternative. Um, but they, they don't seem to have really cared very much about the impact on wildlife. They really didn't do their homework. And I think part of the issue was that the sorts of animals that are killed by toads are the, the ones that try to eat toads. The, the big problem with toads in Australia is that there's no native toads Toads as a group occur in most of the rest of the world, but they never got to Australia. They have a very distinctive type of poison and these big shoulder glands, and that poison gives predators a heart attack unless yeah. they have evolved to live with toads and to, to deal with toads. Small genetic changes can make you much more resistant, but Australian predators don't have that. And so it's creatures like the big lizards, the goannas, the blue tongue skinks, uh, some of the big snakes, The quolls, these cat-sized marsupials, uh, freshwater crocodiles in some areas, these are the sorts of animals that are killed in vast numbers when toads arrive. And frankly, in 1935, I don't think people were all that worried about the notion that a whole bunch of snakes were going to get killed. Um, you know, they might have seen that as a good thing. 
you talked about um, large numbers. Um, I mean, the cane toads are another great example where it just needs a few animals to feel at home. And uh, then obviously, like you said, 30,000 <laughs> eggs um, help to, to, to just jack up the numbers. What is the, the latest estimation? How many cane toads are currently on this continent? Oh, well, I mean, the toads have spread all the way from the Queensland coast. They've spread down into northeastern New South Wales, but quite slowly. But they've spread very rapidly across the tropics. And so within a few years, they'll be in Broome on the west coast. So they're covering something like a third of the Australian continent. Uh, and there's certainly millions upon millions of them. But, you know, the reality is that, uh, you know, if you've got 100 female toads out there, and uh, it rains tomorrow night, and they all breed, and they all produce 30,000 eggs, you've suddenly got a big difference in the number of toads running around Australia <laughs> from that one site. So I think the numbers are, are really um, pretty pretty flaky. You really can't do much with it. Yeah. Uh, we know they're more common um, soon after they arrive. Their numbers then seem to decrease through time, uh, but that's generally true with invaders. Um, when they first turn up, they have a great time, but after a while, the native wildlife, the ecosystem, begins to work out vulnerabilities and ways to exploit them uh, and so that seems to have been happening with the toads as well. What I thought was interesting that um, when we think of invasive species and you know we, we hear about the devastating effects um, it's kind of overlooked that there's also actually species that don't suffer from from the invasion they actually benefit like some species do which ones and, and how how exactly do they benefit? Yeah look ecosystems are complex things and there's lots of connections in food webs and so what tends to happen when the toads arrive uh, in a new area is that there is sudden, very high mortality of things like goannas. And the goannas mm. are probably the key. Uh, the quolls were already declining before the toads arrived, but the goannas are very common in areas um, without toads. And these are, these are big lizards. They're abundant. They eat a lot. And so you, you get 90 95% mortality of goannas within a few months after toads arrive. It's just horrible. Yeah. But of course, the, the goannas are eating a hell of a lot of things other than, than toads. And so if you're a frog living in that area, your worst enemy suddenly got taken out of the system. <laughs> um, you may have a few problems with toads yourself, but probably not too many problems. Um, the big issue will be that the goannas are gone. And so, for example, we predicted that many species of Australian snakes would be in big trouble when the toads arrived. Yeah. In fact, there are a few that are in big trouble, but most of the species we thought would be vulnerable, in fact, have increased in numbers really? since toads arrived. And the reason for that is that the goannas are gone. And the goannas were clearly eating more, more snakes uh, than are being killed by toads. So it's a balance. Um, there's also a bunch of species that can eat toads and aren't affected by the poison. Um, one of the snakes, uh, but a lot of birds can do that. Birds really aren't affected much by cane toads. Um, rodents, native rats, introduced rats and so on, they love to eat cane toads. You know, you can offer them a cane toad for breakfast, lunch and dinner and they'll come back for more nice spicy food. Really? So native ants, a lot of native invertebrate predators, but particularly the big meat ants, um, love to eat baby toads. And so after toads arrive, within a decade or so, you probably start to get increases in the meat ants, the rats, maybe some of the birds, and that tends to knock the numbers of toads down. They no longer have it all their own way. Um, and so the system comes into some other kind of equilibrium where we still have toads around, but they're not as common as they were in those first few years post-invasion. 
that is highly interesting because one of the things one always stumbles across is they have no um, enemies in Australia. And clearly that is not true. It's, it's funny how there's such a big misconception. I mean, the, you talked about the equilibrium. It makes total sense that a system adapts to it. And I was, oh, you know what? They're not that bad. <laughs> I might add them to my diet. But why is there such a misconception about that then? One of those early agricultural scientists from Queensland had a lovely line in one of his papers saying that toads attract nonsense um, like a, a, a cow pad attracts flies. Um, and people love to tell stories about toads that, just, that simply aren't true. Um, you often hear that nothing can eat toads in Australia. Yes. Um, lots of things can. You know, the, the kites um, in the Northern Territory are patrolling the roads at dawn, picking up roadkills, and they, they love to eat dead toads. They don't eat the poison glands. Um, but they can taste the poison. They know it's awful, so they leave that alone. They just eat the rest of it. Um, you know, the rats um, open up the toad and, and eat its tongue, things like this. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of one of these things that the toad got demonised, I think. Yeah, it became yeah. a bit of a political football. Um, you know, you got, I guess you can make arguments about how we deal with uh, foreigners um, coming in and we tend to have stories about their awful habits um, the toads are a problem. Uh, yeah. They're a big problem. Yeah. But they're not kind of cataclysmic, you know, um, doomsday scenario that you sometimes hear about. Yeah, I, I think it shows people love a good doomsday scenario. Um, what is maybe one of the most crude myths about uh, cane toads? I mean, I I was told by by Australians once I moved to Australia, oh, you have to be careful, you know, if there are toads in some body of water, you have to be careful, it might be contaminated with their toxins, for example. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating yeah, what kind of was, myths are circling out there. That was a classic one. One of, one of the ones you hear a lot is the toads poison the water and you hear that they... Um, yeah. they kill all the all the chickens to drink the water and um that 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 story keeps coming up um <laughs> they did some studies in 1935 and chickens love to eat toads and, and they're fine and we did the same kinds of studies yeah. i think one chicken had about 40 toads small toads in one meal and was a very happy chicken um so yeah look you, you hear a lot of those stories um i just don't know you know we get information in lots of ways from so-called yeah. local experts and you know there's a lot of misinformation out there about uh, everything from covid through to climate change i guess the toads are just one more example yeah and that's why it's so important to clarify that um it is known that the the toad spread quite rapidly um over north australia as you mentioned before as well um, but they also move southwards in april after the the unprecedented rainfall and the floods in new south wales um th there was a discovery of a cane toad uh, in western sydney that made the news and sparked worries that the toads are spreading further south than expected Lots of headlines. How how likely is it that we will see cane toads in larger numbers um, as far south as, for example, Sydney? Toads are very good at hitching a lift in a truck. Um, and so everywhere within their main range, it's quite likely that toads will end up with some building materials or landscaping materials. Toads like disturbed habitats. They, they like the places that people create. You don't find many toads out there in the, in the rainforest. They're mostly around people. And so they're very likely to get into a truck. And so they're going to turn up um, when that truck is unloaded in Western Sydney, um, but a toad or two is going to hop out. We have records of hundreds of toads every year arriving in Sydney. Now, look, mostly those guys um, are not going to go very far. The local rats will eat them up 
Um, you know, they'll have a lonely time searching for love. There won't be another toad nearby. It's a bit cold. But we had a population established in a suburb near the airport at Tarrant Point several years ago because uh, it's a place where lots of trucks yeah. come. It's a big industrial yeah. estate. And the toads bred there successfully year after year um, and produced thousands upon thousands of young toads. And um, the Sutherland Shire Council uh, did a terrific job getting onto it. We worked with them. You know, we put transmitters on toads. We found out where they were breeding. We managed to block off those breeding sites and, and we used our new methods of collecting tadpoles and so on to get rid of them. And they seem to be gone. We seem to have wiped them out. But it is clear that if you get a few warm summers, and of course we're getting more and more of those recently, um, toads can breed uh, successfully in an area like Sydney. So that they are moving very slowly in the main front, but these satellite populations established by um, you know little pioneers that have that have popped off a truck. Rick, you're known for um, proposing a new mechanism for evolutionary change that is different to the idea of adaptive processes. Could you explain to our listeners what theory you came up with and how it will be of use to control the situation? Yeah, it came out of the study on toads. And one of the first things that we realized when we, we got going with the study, we got funded by the Australian Research Council. So there were resources there. I had a bunch of students and postdocs and Ben Phillips mapped the toad front and realised that it was accelerating, that it had initially had moved quite slowly and it was starting to go faster and faster. And we've, we've subsequently looked in more detail and it's, it's quite a dramatic thing. From about 10 or 15 kilometres a year in the 1940s and 50s through to about 60 kilometres a year by wow. the time it's got to Darwin. It, it's faster than any frog in the world moves. You mm. know, it's, these guys at the invasion front simply run all night, they stay on the road because you can move faster. Um, they, they take the day off right beside the road, just having a quick rest, and then as soon as night falls, they're off again. And they run in a very straight line, very consistent directions. Um, they're, they're a dispersal machine. Um, whereas the toads back in Queensland sit around the backyard, don't go very far, go back to their hole under the shed the next day. Um, they're real sit-at-home animals. And we actually collected toads from Queensland and the Northern Territory and Western Australia and we bred them, we raised their babies under exactly the same conditions and when those guys grew up they inherited the dispersal behaviour of their parents. So the, the baby of a Western Australian toad will sprint for the far horizon and a baby from a Queensland toad will, will just sit on its bum. Um, so it's evolution, it's, it's very rapid evolution of an invader, of a fast moving invader. And conventional evolutionary theory, you know, dating back to dear old Charles Darwin, says that the only process that can cause that sort of change, that directional change, is natural selection, where there's a benefit to being at the front. Yeah. Uh, and you can imagine that the toads, the first toad, you know, that gets to Kakadu, lots of food there, not too many other toads to compete with. Um, it maybe can, can get more food, it could have more babies. You know, that's the kind of thing that, that Charlie Darwin would have would have thought was happening. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, that first toad that gets to Kakadu also has a hell of a lot of goannas still around that are likely <laughs> to kill it. Yeah. Um, so it's not, not quite so clear that it's a benefit. And when we looked into it, we realised that there was another process at work that we call spatial sorting. Um, so you think back to the 1930s, the toads have been released from, from along the Queensland coast, wherever their sugar came. 
And at the end of, say, a year later, you look at where toads are distributed, there'll be some toads will still be in the places they got left. And other toads will have been more mobile and, and they'll be out to the western edge. So they're the, they're the kind of adventurous, fast-moving toads. And, of course, the only toads on that edge will be toads like that. So they'll yeah. breed with each other. So if mum has genes for um, terrific endurance and, and dad's got genes for long legs and speed, then some of the babies will get both of those genes in the same individual. And that individual can move further than either mum or dad did because it's concentrated, yeah. those dispersal-enhancing genes. And then the next generation, you know, they're, they're heading it further west, the same thing's happening. Now we've got these faster and faster toads and they're right on the edge of the distribution. They breed with themselves. And so any gene that arises that makes you go faster ends up concentrated in the same individuals at the yeah. front. And any individual that slows you down, tells you to take the night off, go around in circles, that ends up left back in Queensland. So through time, you without any benefit, you know, you, you, this process works even if there's no advantage to being at the front, yeah. even if there's a bit of a disadvantage. You still get these racehorse toads evolving because <laughs> the genes for fast dispersal turn up at the front. Um, we've actually um, called this the Olympic Village effect because the suggestion there's lots of lots of uh, shenanigans going on in the Olympic Village between <laughs> the athletes, and so these are the athletic toads that are getting together, and that Olympic Village effect is producing um, even more athletic offspring. And so, through time, through eighty odd years what we've got is the toad at the front that is contains all of these genes that enable it to disperse faster, um, even though there's never been an advantage to that. And so spatial sorting is the first new evolutionary mechanism since natural selection. Um, it's not as important as natural selection. It only works during range expansion, um, but it can put together a, a pretty dramatic kind of an animal that looks very different from the original kind and that performs very differently. Um, and in a world of climate change where lots of species are changing their distributions, this sort of process is, is going on all over the place, you know, in pine trees and grass and giant pandas and every other kind of organism you can imagine that's changing its range as climate changes. Based on your research, Rick, um, and the need for a new approach to deal with the spread of, uh, um, of the cane toads, the Cane Toad Coalition was founded. Who is involved in the project or was, was and still is involved in the project and what new methods and strategies um, are you trying to implement? We were funded by the Australian Research Council to find out what was going on yeah. in an invasion, really, rather than to try to stop it or to save the native animals. But, of course, we always hoped that something would, would turn up. And a couple yeah. of things turned up. One is that we found a way to uh, cull tadpoles of cane toads using pheromones that the tadpoles used to communicate with each other. Um, and that was very effective, and community groups are now using that right across the range of toads. Sorry to butt in there, but how does, it, does that exactly work, culling, culling uh, tadpoles? Well, it's a strange and wonderful story. Um, within Australia, um, if you're a cane toad, yep. your worst enemy is another cane toad. Um, <laughs> you know, the native predators aren't very good at dealing with you and so on and so forth. But it's particularly a problem if you're a tadpole. You're, you're stuck in this little water body. Yeah. There's a limited amount of food. Um, you've got 30,000 brothers and sisters from your clutch. And then, then some other female toad comes down to the water's edge and she lays another 30,000 eggs. 
if they hatch into tadpoles and they start to grow up, they're going to be eating all of the food um, before you can get to it. You know, that competition's awful. And yeah. so within Australia, cane toad tadpoles have evolved to be cannibals. They've evolved to be very good at finding newly laid toad eggs yeah. and racing across and killing them. They get a meal, uh, but the main advantage for them is they get rid of the competition. Now, once you know that, um, and we discovered that somewhat by accident, uh, but we knew that there must be a chemical that was produced by the eggs that the cane toad tadpoles were using to find those eggs because they come hurtling towards them. Yeah. Um, the water's dirty. There's no way in the world they can see the eggs. And so we experimented with a bunch of stuff. We worked with uh, Professor Rob Capen, University of Queensland, and we found out in the end, I should say my, my postdoc, Michael Crosland, found out really that the critical chemical was the poison that the toad has. The toad yeah. has this poison in their shoulder glands. The female toad puts a lot of that poison into the eggs to protect them as they develop so that nothing else will eat them. That poison starts to ooze out of the egg as it comes close to hatching. And as soon as that chemical is available in the pond, the older tadpoles go whoopee and they, they <laughs> hurtle towards that chemical. So if you put toad poison inside a funnel trap, just like you'd use to catch bait fish or whatever, yeah. in a pond, it fills up with cane toad tadpoles. Um, the frog tadpoles know it's a poison. They head in the other direction. So you catch almost nothing else. Um, and so it's a very selective way. Uh, you can catch, as I said, tens of thousands of, of toad tadpoles. You can eradicate them from ponds. And so that, that's been a, a surprising and, um, you know, really exciting result from it. Uh, Rob is now running uh, the Cane Toad Challenge from Queensland Uni, where he's making the bait available in a, a form that isn't dangerous for people to use. And, uh, you know, it really is a very successful program now of, of invasive species control. That's amazing. Wow. Um, now that is one of the, the methods you introduced. Um, you also have another, you also introduced another new method that seems a little bit crazy, some people might say. Um, it involves spreading toads into areas where there are not that many toads around yet. Yeah, there were some interesting comments in the, in the newspapers in the Northern Territory and in Australia when I suggested this idea and <laughs> basically saying I should, I should get, get out more often and, 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 and not be quite so silly. Um, this came out of the, the trials that we ran. We, we were interested in which native species were in danger from toads. And yeah, we yeah. discovered that some species won't try to eat toads and others do. Even of the guys that do try to eat toads, quite often, if the first toad they eat is a small one that makes them sick but doesn't kill them, they rapidly learn to leave toads alone. It's called conditioned taste aversion. Basically, if you eat something that makes you throw up for the next few hours, you remember the taste and the smell of, of that material and you stay away from it. Yeah. When I was 17 years old. On a camping trip, somebody gave me a bottle of Scotch whiskey. I, I drank it all. I threw up all the next day, and 50 years later, I really have trouble. I, I have a, a, a reaction of nausea when I smell scotch. Wow. It's socially crippling, of course. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it turns out that fish and frogs and, yeah. and small mammals and, and so on are all crocodiles. They're all at least as smart as I am. They, they have a meal of toad. If it's a big toad, it'll kill them. That's the end of the story. Yeah. But if it's a small toad, They very rapidly learn not to eat it. So I had the idea that if 
condition taste aversion can save some of these species, well, how about how about the vulnerable ones? And the vulnerable yeah. ones are the big predators because they eat big toads. There's a hell of a lot of poison in a big toad. There's very little poison in a small toad. So we had the idea that if we could expose animals like quolls and goannas and blue tongues and crocodiles to small toads before they met a big toad, then maybe they would learn. And when the big toads turned up, the predators would leave them alone. And I suggested the idea. I was pretty broadly described as an idiot. Um, and so we did the detailed study. And, and, and so we, we, you know, we, we took quolls, for example, that were raised at the Territory Wildlife Park in Darwin. Half of them we trained to avoid toads. The other half we didn't. We let them all go with transmitters on them. The untrained guys were usually dead within an hour or two when they first found a toad. The trained guys survived. Later on, um, Jonathan Webb and his, his um, students released trained quolls in Kakadu when they survived and so on. So it, it works. And we did the same thing with crocodiles, the same thing with blue-tongued lizards, uh, the same thing with goannas. Um, and so if you give a learning experience to these predators just in advance of the toad front, then by the, when the toad front arrives, you've got a bunch of trained predators yeah. that don't try to eat toads. Now, the beauty of the idea is that you should only need a single generation of training because the toads arrive, it, it, the, the guys at the toads at the front are, are big non-reproductive toads. They're putting all of their effort into dispersing rather than breeding because of spatial sorting and so on. And so if you meet one of those toads and you eat it, you're dead. But within a couple of years, more normal toads start to arrive and they're breeding. So there's lots of baby toads around. And so if you can keep a, a goanna alive for a few years after the toads first arrive, yeah. that goanna's offspring will grow up in a world where there's lots of small toads. And that means the first toad they try to eat will be a little one, it'll make them sick, it won't kill them, and they can learn for themselves. So the idea is that a single generation of education can create a pocket of resistant predators. And the Cane Toad Coalition you referred to is, is a group involving, uh, again, Australian Research Council funded, <clears throat> but... We have a whole bunch of partners that range from <clears throat> state government management authorities through to private landowners, um, groups like World Wildlife Fund, Land Care. Um, we've got uh, graziers. Uh, we have uh, even a local brewery in Broome is giving us a bit of money. Um, so it's a very widespread coalition, Indigenous groups, Kimberley Land Council's part of it. So groups that have often been in conflict about land management have actually all come together and they're working with us to map that expansion of the toads across the Kimberley and immediately in advance of that front we release the small toads. Now within a month or two the, the front's going to be there. It won't matter. Yeah. Any impact of the little toads will be negligible compared to the hundreds of thousands of big toads that are about to arrive. But the impact on the behaviour of the predators could be huge um, and it's been a difficult time. COVID has meant we haven't been able to get into those areas too much over the last couple of years. We had a very dry, wet season. But we're starting to look at the data now, and it's encouraging. Um, I think it's working. Who would have thought that a bottle of scotch 50 years ago would benefit you this much in your <laughs> career and not only help you, but the whole country? <laughs> I thank you so much for taking the time, and hopefully I'll hear you soon. Nice to talk to you, Ben. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Rick Shine. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. 
write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. Until next time.